Hey everybody, just a heads up that this episode features some cursing, so keep that in mind and enjoy the episode. X-Men. Hey everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Battle of the Atom. This is your weekly X-Men podcast where normally we rank every X-Men story from A to Z, and that's Adam and I'm Zach, but instead we're doing something different today. Adam, say hi to everybody. Hey everybody. Uh, Yeah, we got a great guest today. Who is it? Uh, You may know him from uh, work on books like Sword or Generation Hope or Origins 2. Or Uncanny X-Men, Wictiv, Die, Once in Future, a lot of very popular things. Uh, it's Kieran Gillen. Kieran, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm also dreading you might write, hi, we invite you on to rank you Z. <laughs> <laughs> we tend not to rank the uh, the guests, just the books. We, we try not to. I will I will say, uh, one, of, one of your stories from your Uncanny X-Men run has gone pretty high on the list because i've been obsessed with it ever since i uh, got it it's a tie-in to avx which is present compared or considering what we have coming up with uh both immortal x-men and uh judgment day yeah thank you um that was that was a fun time also a very long time ago now which is beginning to throw me in this kind of <laughs> that? that was 10 years ago Mm. yeah it's upsetting yeah, i think wild. for all of us i gotta say the good thing about the sliding time scale is only actually an hour uh, you know a year and a half ago so uh... <laughs> <laughs> no uh it's it's exciting to have you on here i know you are about to launch i believe the week that this uh comes out will be the launch week for immortal x-men number one the launch title for the destiny of x era and a really fun time with uh avengers x-men eternals judgment day coming very soon after yeah it's gonna be a fun time i mean i guess that's the weird thing i've never written an event before and the idea that of course we're hyping it now but it's still like four months away or whatever (laughs) it's just kind (laughs) of like so it feels actively weird to sort of like give out uh anything and especially the weird thing about judgment day of course it emerges very much from the books like it's about (laughs) eternals and avengers and x-men it's not kind of it's not something that dictates to the books it's something that emerges from them so you know what i mean like I feel like me talking about Judgment Day almost spoils some of the stuff we've got ahead. So I'm going to be very tiptoe. And of course, like, hey. Immortal is doubly so. Like, um, you know, it's a, as you say, it's the lead book of Destiny of X. So, like, mm-hmm. I have been thoroughly indoctrinated by the X Office cult, and they've managed <laughs> to uh, send me out uh, to sort of take uh, take lead. And it's fun because, like, that does impact why you do it. If you know you're the first book, you're whether, okay, you want to be. You know, before we talked, Zach, you were saying that, you know, Uncanny X was your first issue. And when I was writing that, I was aware that I want to try to make this as accessible as I can, which is hard if it's the X-Men. There's a lot of stuff going on there. Mm-hmm. And with Immortal, I was thinking, okay, well, I've got all my own stuff. And a lot of that is I want to kind of do a refresher as in, okay, if you haven't been reading, uh, you know, this era of X-Books, A, what is wrong with you? Oh, and B, <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's the useful stuff. And it's kind of, it's kind of useful anyway, in terms of just as a reminder for people, here's stuff you should know. It's one of those things like, um, actually, I don't want to say, I'm just, if you leave me to it, I'll just describe the whole issue. But there's definitely bits where I go, okay, here, allow to remind people of important stuff that may be important going forward across the line. And there's maps, you know, we've updated the maps for 2022. That, I thought that, was, that was actually the first thing in my document, must update maps. Are you saying that uh, if a reader see a gun on the wall in issue one, it may in fact be pulled down and fired by like issue five or six or something? We've got like a lot of like, it's not, we actually, there's a bit where this sinister gets a gun down from the wall and he shoots it. No, he doesn't shoot it actually. You're right. So like there's a lot of guns on the wall and uh, some of them shoot Cyclops eyeballs. Uh, that's the minor spoiler. I introduced a Cyclops firing an eyeball gun way back last time I was writing X-Men. <laughs> Uh, and I brought that back for a cameo. Spoilers. <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't I wasn't thinking that we were going to get into A plus X one shots, but I mean, let's go. Yep, that was fun. Like um, that was the sinister versus Loki long shot, uh, not long shot, uh, one shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that was a, a giggle having two characters who are absolute trolls just butt heads. Now, <laughs> it's it's interesting. Like you said, you we're writing some X-Men books darn near a decade ago. And now you're, now you're going to, you know, spearhead this whole new era 
of it. What's different for you this time around? What made you want to come back and play with some of the new toys in the toy box? I mean, the decade is the main thing. Like, as a writer who, who, in fact, just as a writer generally, I don't like repeating myself. I mean, Mm. I have my themes because, you know, being a certain kind of writer means you have your themes and they're your themes. You stick with them and you explore them and that's what you're into. But in terms of the specifics, I just don't. I don't go back to books. I don't, um, you know, I try not to do anything like that. And that's the kind of different thing here. As in the diff- the new thing here is, oh, I'm going back to a, a book, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and that's okay. What? How do you, how do I treat that? And the reality is the fact that everything's changed. You know, this isn't the mm. same book. Yeah, I'm writing Ember again. But Ember's got like water under the bridge. You know, I'll be touching you know Cyclops and magic uh, and Colossus and Magneto. I'm just thinking about the main character. So wrote, you know, like yeah, I'm touching I'm obviously sinister. But all those people have changed. So the people I'm writing isn't the people I wrote a decade ago. I'm not like mm. going to go back and say, okay, here's my unfinished plot. Um, so so I, we're, I, not I, gonna get, we're not going to get more unit in this one. Is that was, what li- that's literally what I was about to say. <laughs> but let's see if unit turns up. You know, before I say that, uh, <laughs> like, um, I don't unit walking off sulkily at the end of my run, refusing to say what he was up to, was, was the most peaky thing I think I've ever written. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like... I think that's the best way of putting it. Is if there's a story that's gone on, I'm, I'm picking up where it's gone on. Sinister's the best one. Like, I did stuff with Sinister and left him where it was. And we've had a decade of people doing really cool stuff with him. Mm-hmm. And where I'm picking up isn't like my interpretation of Sinister, which I'm going to redo. It's the, it's the, it's the Sinister that's been built across the X line. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I was writing, I was writing this in a 19th century dandy. And he's mm-hmm. now, he's, he's merged into something slightly different now. And I'm picking up from there and writing about that. Uh, and that's fun because that immediately rejuvenates it. Now, with when it comes to Sinister, though, I feel like your take on the character has largely been responsible for what the current incarnation is, at least in this idea that he's a system, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just curious, like, how has it been? What are your thoughts about, you know, Hickman kind of diving into that version of the character? Uh, Wells has obviously kind of used your your version as an inspiration. Um what about the character and the changes to it have, have made you the most excited to return to him? He's just, he's, he's fun. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, there's one of the things with Sinister. It's like when I, when I took over Uncanny, he was one of my projects in terms of his, I mean, as a work for high writer, I often think that as in part of my job is obviously finding stuff that works and them doing it well, but also, okay, mm-hmm. what's not working. And for me, mm-hmm. Sinister felt like a problem in terms of like, there's a lot of really cool stuff here, but like, why does he not quite land? Uh, as well as I want him to. And that's this surgery I did. I, I, and part of it was like, I don't think he has a goal. I wanted to give him a goal. I didn't want mm. I wanted to give him a bit more specifics. Um, uh, and there's a lot of philosophy. And to us, my original Sinister documents were far too complicated. There's a lot of stuff in my run, which mm. no one's picked upon. <laughs> and, but there's a lot of stuff they have because there's just so much stuff. And what it has been is the wonderful process of editing of people have gone, okay, they're the good bits. <laughs> you know, Sinister is a system. Uh, the idea of the um, the the hyper, the campness of him, the leaning in, you know, he's always been a camp character. Let's really lean into it. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the cloneness of him, the, uh, the awful genetic experiments. I think that literally, I mentioned the throwaway eyeball thing. I think the best throwaway idea was, you know, he weaponizes mutants powers. He's a clonalist who believes in appropriating mutant powers, you know, and he's literally turned himself to a mutant by that, you know, mm-hmm. that's a really mm-hmm. simple core idea. And that's kind of like, for me, all the kind of, all the big characters have a core idea. You know, it's theirs. You know, it's the difference between a Daredevil story and a Batman story. You know, that. Uh, and I think by drilling down, we gave that. Um, and I think it's like, you know, it wouldn't have happened if, if John hadn't picked up on him in Secret Wars. It's one of those things that you don't really realise appear like your work until they actually use it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, when I saw that, like, Sinister turn, you know, when the room full of Sinisters in Secret Wars, it's like, oh, right. A, that's beautiful. But B, um, you know, I, I felt very touched. And sort of seeing how it's grown has been delightful. And, it, and it's definitely for me, it's the yes ending because you know they've all yes and yes and yes and, mm-hmm. and now I get it back and I yes and back. Um, we talk about you know what one of the things about Immortal is it's a book about the Quiet Council, so it's these twelve mm-hmm. people who have a shared secret, and it's the political nature of Krakoa and the games they play over each other. Can they? And it's the question is, can they save Krakoa? Because it's one of those things that you know they, they get to be immortal, and it's like what can Krakoa be? And they are fighting for the future of it. Um, and the way I've sort of said it in interviews, it's like some of the people think they're in, some of the people think they're in the West Wing, some of the people think they're in um, uh, House of Cards, and a few of them know they're in Veep. And you know, for me, that's <laughs> you know the shorthand for that different, different, different sorts of political stories. Um, 
And one of the devices I'm doing is I'm rotating the narrator. So I'm having a narrator and each of the characters ah. is got and the first issue is sinister. So you get yeah. and it's, you know, spoilers, he's a villain. Uh, <laughs> and I think it, for me, one of my writings, I know, shock. People <laughs> Mr. Sinister is up to no good. Why who would you be surprised? Mr. Sinister. Who could have up to known, Sinister? Truly. <laughs> but one of the fun things that you get to know his perspective. And especially because um, you know, and you and as we go through the cast, you get to see everyone's perspective as we go through. I mean, I say this aloud. I will abandon it the second it gets in the way of the story. But the um <laughs> but the at least for the first I mean the five issues I've written of it, they they've all got narrators. And you know, it's been fun mm. to rotate them around. It's fun to write a strong perspective. It's almost like Neo Claremontism, I found myself thinking. You know, it's mm. like you know, uh narrate embedding narrator is a bit like how thought balloons used to work. Mm. So it's a bit like when you've got an embedded narrator, you get to A reintroduce all the information it makes it quite accessible you know because the character because you know you get a bit where sinister's thinking about what he's really thinking about exodus or xavier or anyone in the room and you get the introduction but people who also so get people who don't know it get the introduction but people mm. who do know the characters get to know what sinister thinks and that's cool mm. too you know and yeah. that's the same like and you go through as it progresses um so yeah so sinister's my way in i've said he's a villain so knowing what the villain is up to at least in part i think is powerful because it's, mm-hmm. it's not a book where the it's a book where everyone has schemes, and the, the, the thrill is partially what are people up to, but also knowing what they're up to and will they pull it off. This is part mm-hmm. of that. In some ways, I think the book what I most like is um, trust what, what John was doing with Inferno. You know, mm-hmm. Inferno reads a lot like a mortal at time. A mortal, I think, is cheekier. <laughs> I, you know, I, I lack the glacial perfection of John's writing, uh, but the, in terms of like a vote being a really cool scene. We've got that. But at the same time, mm-hmm. we've got assassinations and skullduggery and uh, all manner of Emma-based cattiness. It's, it's a great joy. You know what I mean? Like, just, does that help? Yeah, absolutely. Earlier, you mentioned just the sheer number of characters that you're, you're keeping track of here. Um, there, there's so many interested parties, both on the council and around the council. You know, if you consider the the little Doug fam that's going on now, <laughs> uh, is it tricky keeping track of all of these characters and their motivations? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, joking aside, the job is editing. Like, it's, it's always this merges with Judgment Day as well. And that you're kind of, okay, what's the story? Because if you don't drill down to what's the story at any one given moment, it becomes meaningless. And if people don't care about the story, it's pointless. You know, it's just like reading a Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, for me, a perspective on the council is important. So, like, one of the advice I'm doing, yes, I think the book is a cool cast. Um, whilst we've got the 12 in the Quiet Council, and people coming in and out is required, um, I have books, accounts which are focused on the council. And there's other characters who are in books elsewhere who I have, you know, there was the joke, you know, when Wolverine was on in 8 million books, there was right. the jokes about you know, his social calendar. Uh, how does he manage to do it all? And for me, I'm kind of taking that seriously. Like if you're doing an, another important job elsewhere, you're not paying enough attention to the council. You know, mm-hmm. like, and it's, it's not like any insults to the people not who are doing this. It's just there's a lot of things going on. So mm-hmm. like, it's like Storm, you know, Storm's off doing Storm stuff. You know, Storm has to basically, you know, on a racco, doing all the sort of, like, all, all the X-Men Red stuff. That means she's not quite as polit- at the same level of political player as someone like Emma is, who has kind of deliberately gone, okay, I'm I, I'm fed up with these useless men. I need to, someone needs to be grown up here and it's going to be me. You know what right. I mean? And that's, that's kind of where my sort of core cast comes from. So it's kind of, you know, I think you can almost work it out by uh, by remove. If, if you're in another book, they're probably not my core cast. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you know, um, Sinister, Destiny, Mystique, Emma, uh, Xavier, Exodus, uh, a new person. Because uh, obviously, the entry point in the series is um, Magneto choosing to leave the council. That's the uh, mm-hmm. big thing we're opening the book with. Um, sorry, the replacements. I'm sure a bit. Like, I think Shaw's Shaw's not a major major player, but he's like he's in the mix. It's going to be interesting. Yeah, they're awful horrible people. You know what? I, I like to think that they're not awful, horrible. horrible people make make for uh, very interesting stories. Speaking of awful horrible people, you you kind of kicked off your career around Marvel with books like Journey into Mystery, uh, that that were about a guy trying to be less awful and horrible, failing a little bit, but still using some of those. Uh, some of those ticks you've had you've had books like Wikidiv or the current Eternals that have been a lot of people of different moral characters scheming around one another and doing different things with that being something that's in your repertoire how do you make a book like Immortal X-Men stand out when you know like 
one of the biggest things in Eternals of the you know start of your run was hey how do we fix a vote to make it to make it uh how do we whip everything into shape so that Thanos can rule the earth or whatever. I did like that. If you haven't read uh, Eternals, there's literally a double page spread where there's it's just gerrymandering. Like <laughs> the, the whole thing is just like. And I found myself right. I was joking to my friend. Like, Today I've been writing a gerrymandering exercise. You know, this is the mighty Marvel Stanley they've all came for. And I was like, I was writing it thinking, who's going to like this? This is not why people read Marvel comics. But people loved it. You know, and that's kind of part of the thing that I think as a writer, it's always about what entertains you. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. not to be self-indulgent, but to be your own. If it doesn't entertain you, who the hell's it going to entertain? And right. if, if, if you're entertained by the concept of it, like, and for me, it was something incredibly fascinating about how do you manipulate eternal beings to vote in Thanos? How can we do it? And it's one of these great joys where you, you, people can't say, oh, they would never vote for Thanos because I've shown exactly how they would. <laughs> you know, it's because so much cheating in writing where you kind of go, oh, this person won the fight because they had the strength of will or whatever. Right. And in this case, you know, no, I showed all the working. Um, and I think it just comes from the politics of the people. Like Loki, when Loki's doing schemes and games, it's Loki. You know, he, he works in this way, he does that. With the Eternals, it's a it's a completely different sort of engine. These are different politics. These are especially with Eternals, I'm creating large political groups inside the Eternals who have desires or needs or wants. Um, and with the uh, Quiet Council, it's just much more personal. Like it's smaller, mm-hmm. even though it's a bigger. It's you know it's it's two hundred thousand people on Gakoa, so it's a significant political body. It's twelve people. They're very specific. Um, there's very specific rules. Uh, and there's the mutant of it. Like, the fact that, you know, Loki makes it magic, Eternals are just not human. Like, and, you know, and the mutants are, despite themselves, are, are you, you know, still kind of human in some way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, as in that kind of um, groundedness of it. That's the thing. But, I mean, for me, some of them, my favourite stuff in Hawks when John was writing it was just the turning up and bullying the ambassadors. Who didn't love that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and that's kind of the stuff I'm, partially most like like and that kind of doing a human scale political book that's the that's why it doesn't feel like anything i've written because it's not um but at the same time as you say it's absolutely stretching the same muscles i like how to phrase this people are always suspicious when they play board games against me because it's like (laughs) i'm like i'm not i'm a nice guy that's the i think it's partly that i'm i'm a gamer you know and like that kind of how this I like my stuff to feel real and pieces moving around and people making plays mm-hmm. um, and all that comes in the work, but it's also like games are a safe place to play with that kind of stuff. Uh, in reality, it's like I'm somebody who actively despises lying, you know, not that anyone likes it, <laughs> but that's not true. People like, some people love lying, but you know, like kind of like the, the very fun, that ultra repression of my Catholicism, I think uh, all that just comes out of the fiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my catholicism is all over all my work at the moment i'm, I'm very aware of it it's, it's pretty weird oh we've got we, I, I know some of our listeners have uh have questions about uh about how that's going to influence your work here so it's going to be very uh interesting to see but we'll we'll hold off on talks about any sort of schisms or anything like that one question uh that we did have is you know one of your big players who's has a large influence, but frankly has not had a huge amount of page time period in the past is destiny. I mean, this mm. era is being promoted as destiny of X. The big push of Inferno was how to get destiny back. Oops, she's actually already been back for a little bit. Now, how does that impact everybody scheming and playing with a new player on the field? How do you, how do you go about being, you know, one of the first people to really be touching this character in 30 years and, mm with the amount of importance that she's gained over the last like three. I think that's the, I think I've said this before, but I think destiny is probably the most important X character who's had the least amount of page time. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the really interesting thing of her. And so getting to write her now and let her play, just let her be fallible rather than this. Kind, I mean, not fallible. I don't want to stress that she's fallible because the perfection of destiny is very much something I lean into. Mm-hmm. Um, but like to let her live, and that's that, that's the exciting thing. Like, okay, like having my initial pitch for Immortal has these kind of like core concepts of what this is how I think about the twelve on the council. This is what they're like, this is where they're at, this is what where they're at. And one of mine was Mystique was she's happy. Yeah. And like for the first time, it almost like Mystique's never gonna be running around and making daisy chains. But like, you know, Mystique's got her wife back. Like, she's gonna be delighted. And we get to see this relationship together, you get to see them happy briefly. 
I say briefly because it's the X Men. You know, things are never right. happy completely. But that kind of um, and they seem a living couple, and that's the other thing about Immortal. The, the joy about Immortal goes both ways. Like, yeah, that all the X Men are immortal now, but Immortal also goes backwards. Like, so I'm quite, and several of these characters have been alive for, you know, Nathaniel's been, Nathaniel, Irene, uh, Raven have been alive since the 9th century. Um, right. Uh, Exodus, like, Siege of, you know, he was at the Siege of Jerusalem, you know, um, or etc. You know, so Xavier and, you know, Eric, you position them somewhere in the 20th century. Obviously, Eric, you know exactly where he positions. And also right. that you get the flashback of it. Like, I kind of want to delve into their history together uh, in terms of that. And that also goes forward. So the idea of these these characters understanding time, especially someone like Destiny, who literally takes the long view. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm really interested in characters' powers, especially how does, you know, getting close to Destiny allows to explore how our powers work. This is one of the great joys of um, having that more character-focused issues. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that you get when we get to a proper Destiny issue, it's like it's a Destiny issue. This is all about how she sees the world. Um... It's probably actually, I'll take a sidebar there quickly. It's like, I say that, you know, it's perspective on a character issue. It's like, I don't solely keep their perspective. It's that it's just there's more than them in that issue. And they're right. kind of like the back, the background device. It's not like all the scenes are about them. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't want to stress that because it's like, I don't want to make it the idea it feels that bitty because it's very much mm-hmm. like cliffhangers and drama and action. And no, I was about to say kissing. There's not much kissing, which is a shame, but there should be. There's not much I'll, kissing. I'll get... I should, have, I'm, you know, I'm, have you noticed I'm that a... there's a large segment of people that love the kissing? I know, it's a fucking... I paused a second, I know there is. I've just remembered, like, yeah, there's at least... I remember, like, uh, Nick Nick Lowe when I was first in the X-Office. It was like, we need a kiss by issue five, Kieran, or, or I'll pretty much murder you or fire you. And it's, <laughs> I think that's always a pretty good, like, rule for X-Books. You know, um, snogging. Them, you know, these are... <laughs> you know, the X-Men are horny on main. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now you said immortality works both ways. Um, you know, we have been fooled in the past by Mark Brooks promo art, but, uh, in the Mark Brooks promo art for immortal, we have death literally on the poster, um, for your book. Um, if the premise of the books now is deathless, you know, or death proof, how do you approach death as sort of a narrative tool when immortality is right there in the title? It's the good question. I mean, immortality is always the immortality always implies the existence of mortality. You know what I mean? Because if there is that kind of philosophical element, like, oh yeah, death's still at the table, especially because mm-hmm. Kokoa and immortality is relatively fragile. In fact, Kokoa is relatively fragile. Uh, mm-hmm. It's incredibly powerful, but fragile. If it's an if it's an RPG class, it's someone with a you know, it's a great dealer, but not many hit points. Um, <laughs> like, I've really gone deep gamer today. It's uh, it's a bit weird. And so, like, thematically, if you're talking about immortality, you're also talking about death. That's, I think that's important. I, that, that's also one of the connectivities with Eternal mm-hmm. in a very different way. After that, Eternals is almost like almost like a worst-case scenario for Kokoa in terms of, like... For, for, for folks who aren't caught up on Eternals, I just want to add a little asterisk so people know what's the high level of what's going on there. Because if you haven't found out, X-Men <laughs> fans are a little myopic. They, they, mm-hmm. they tend to maybe stay in their lane too much. In Eternals, all the Eternals are eternal, except for when they die uh, and get resurrected, a human yeah. dies, and some it's of them like are not thrilled secret. about that. But, like, relevantly, they've been immortals for a long time, though. And their society, and their book is about stasis. You know, their book mm-hmm. is about our society is utterly, yeah, our society is corrupt. Can we do anything about it when we program to be like this? Um, and the X-Men are not. They're building a society. And the question is, can they build a society worthy to be immortal? And also to be immortal. You know what I mean? Like, all those kind of questions are there. And especially we've got such strong personalities on in the Quiet Council. That's a very real living argument, which is really exciting for me. Um, I forgot what the question was. Oh, just the role of death. Oh yeah, mm. death. It's always going to be there. And it's like, um, I must admit, one of the things, one of the many things I admired about um, the entire this era of X Men is John's the problems of bringing taking death off the table. The mm. idea, because it's like the fact that we're comic fans that are inured to the concept of death a little, as they don't take death seriously enough, and it's like, okay, let's just remove it. And then we'll see what happens. And then we'll make <laughs> other ways of like creating tension and worry. And where does the concept of death, you know, and it's turning a problem of a serial narrative into an absolute strength, mm. uh, which is like, that's a fun thing to explore, uh, especially because there's still a distinct morality attached to their resurrection protocols. Like imagine if Sinister was in charge. Mm. Like, I would not, I dare say it wouldn't be working like 
uh, it is now. It's that kind of like sinister. I want sinister. I want five hundred Proteuses immediately. <laughs> you know, um, that's an interesting take on this. Now, one thing that you had on your initial run back uh, back about a decade ago with Uncanny is that that was a book that jumped from story arc to crossover to story arc to crossover to story arc to crossover pretty much for the entire what two and some change years that you were on it (laughs) you're going you're you're on immortal x-men and going about an arc and then right into judgment day uh how has that how has your previous time on these books prepared you to be uh setting up this story and is it different that it's setting up the story that yeah. you know, you're it's behind like, from i don't get much to like, complain about someone derailing my uh, book when it's myself doing it it's like that right is it <laughs> that right is a shit what's he what's he what was he thinking when he wrote that how dare he um <clears throat> one of my things about work for hire is like as long as i know what the job is going in i'm always almost always fine with it the problem comes when the job changes so when i joined uncanny x-men the idea I knew there was going to be schism in like twelve issues time, and I knew there'd be AVX in ten in twelve issues time after that. So my, I didn't view it as a derailment. I viewed it as I need to work out a way to bridge those two stories. So thematically, I want to. I started with an arc, the Breakboard arc, to basically kind of give the X Men a last time happy and together. Then crossing over with Fear itself, I was building up and showing the tension between Scott. Scott's heading the Breaking Bad a bit. We get to schism, they split, and then I know they're going to be fighting Avengers in ten issues time. And my thing, okay, I want to basically create a situation where people want to see the Avengers and the X-Men throw down. Like, my working title for that run was uh, Uncanny mm-hmm. X-Men, colon, um, Earth's Mightiest Heroes. You know? The implicit throw down of that. And, you know, so I turned what mm-hmm. would, I think some people would view as the problem into the entire point of the book. Um, this time round, it is different, as you say. Like, um, I think the way it goes around, I'm much more worried about helping other people. Like, in terms of, I've been in a... I've, you know, I've written so many crossovers. I think I saw someone say 75% of my Marvel run has had a banner of one sort or another. You know, wow. like it's a huge chug. Listen, I'm not sure there was an issue of Journey into Mystery that didn't have a banner on it. No, there's a few. 75% of Journey to Mystery was with a banner, with a, a crossover banner. Wow. 25% of it wasn't written by me. <laughs> and that's the, and it still holds together. And the thing about Journey to Mitchell is, I knew, it was a time of extreme crossovers. So when I was planning it, I knew that I had to make it adaptable. So the point of Journey mm-hmm. to Mystery is like, the story, the largest story I had, could work as long as A, had enough issues, and B, it would actively subvert whatever crossover it was in for its own purposes. Because I knew at the end, I just needed two pieces, and it's right. like spoilers for Journey to Mystery two world ending threats, which happen at the same time. Loki can only stop one of them, and then that, that fucks him. And that kind of, as long as I manipulate those two pieces in play, we have our story. And that could be generated from whatever happens along the way. Um, you know what I mean? So I was always writing to be flexible and adaptive. Mm. In this case, it's like, I want to... I mean, A, the crossover emerges from so much from the all the three lines of books. As you said earlier, you know, X-Men fans can be like X-Men-centric. They should be. They're X-Men fans. <laughs> um, but at least the, part of the kind of point of those exercises you want to draw from everybody but also explain everyone else stuff to everyone else and try to be respectful of everyone together but also be additive i mean like the um, in terms of drawing from it the crossovers inside one of the crossovers inciting instance is absolutely something that completely comes from the xbox and it's something that's been coming from the xbox for years now um and then when we hit the second act there's a big kind of thing that happens that's not this is the, that's not selling it but you know something something happens is the worst synopsis then something else happens <laughs> there, there's <laughs> there's things that happen at each act when i conceptualize okay, that makes like, that okay, makes here's also like a story prompt it's like here's a device you can take with it and do a really cool story mm-hmm. character centric absolutely additive to whatever you're doing in lots of different ways it's not very dictatorial and it'll allow you to speak to the truths of your characters and hopefully you'll have fun and if you don't want to do it just don't do a story don't tie in you know like it's that that's kind of my thinking so my experience mm-hmm. of writing tie-ins has made me try i hope try to be sensitive um now at this point i can imagine literally every other marvel writer swearing at me and saying no you're not kieran but like that was my intent <laughs> i don't know if i pulled it off but it's certainly my intent um so i think you know x-men fans can be a little bit gun shy when it comes to uh their characters crossing over with uh, the rest of the marvel u um but there's a huge history of it right uh and 
most notably we have seen the Avengers go up against the X-Men multiple times. What do you think changes the recipe a little bit and, and makes it fresh when you're adding the Eternals into this mix? I think putting aside the very specific connect, because I said I don't want to say the specific stuff yet. I mean, there's stuff yeah. to be said in the trailers. I just even I, I don't like saying stuff that's been in the sure. trailers just because it's like I wouldn't tell people. I'll people say just pick it up. But the <laughs> but the, what I find interesting is I am upfront saying the Eternals are the bad guys. This isn't like any oh who's right who's wrong. Oh no no the Eternals are abstractly the aggressors here. Um, and like for people who haven't been following my Eternals run, um, the heroic Eternals have left Eternal society. They've done it because they've discovered this awful truth about them and they, they want to find a way to find, can we change our nature? And their nature has been coded into them like Robocop um, <laughs> or as Mobvian uh, robots. You know, they really are forced to do stuff and they don't, may, maybe stuff they don't want to do. Um, at the same time, this has left eternal mainstream society significantly worse because the good people have left. Uh, and they are in a situation where they've decided to go to war against the mutants for reasons of what is called excess deviation. Um, so in other words, it's and the complete arsenals of the Eternal are significant. So in other words, you've got a real villain, you know, mm-hmm. like and the Eternals. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, what makes it interesting is it's about distrust because you know it's all about the, all the secrets of Kakoa. You know, I've said some of them are going to come out, and then it's like people discovering them. Um, so like, I'm definitely not saying the X Men. I'm pausing here. I'm trying to work out the phrases because it's not like the X Men deserve it. I'm also not going to say that either because <laughs> that's that's definitely you know they don't think they deserve it. I've said the Eternals are the bad guys, but it gives you a very clear situations where here are the bad guys. My God, f- fucking hell! How dare the Eternals do this to the mutants? But all this other stuff's going on as well, um, uh, and the Avengers come in and about almost like the um, they're trying to work out what's going on. I think the Eternal, the Avengers are the most useful people in the early stage of the crossover because they don't know any of the secrets. <laughs> So they actually work as a really useful reader surrogate for both <laughs> people who are only reading one book. As the as the Avengers discover mm-hmm. stuff, the readers also discover stuff. And the Avengers, and you know, I think the most exciting thing I think people early in the crossover mm-hmm. will be the Avengers are very much pro Eternal, sorry, pro X Men. You know, they're like, no, this is wrong. <laughs> uh, you know, they're very, and that's the kind of that's where it's interesting. It's people trying to come from a good place, and that's quite heartwarming because you know, as much as we kind of used to paranoidly thinking everyone's out to get us from the other lines so i know let's pretend they're all heroes because they are <laughs> um and then like and then mm-hmm. things get worse you know and i think it's like it's definitely i mentioned the game stuff like especially when you get to the second act there's a lot of like just difficult decisions i mean um at the quote sid meyer sid meyer mm-hmm. described get he thinks get, he defied games as a series of interesting decisions mm-hmm. and at least the second act for me is a little bit like that like um Thanks. you know and it's it's and it's personal and it because then it becomes it moves from this kind of big heroes fighting heroes and music quotation marks to the Eternals because there's a lot of like other stuff going on there. And the second act, it becomes something mm-hmm. a little else. Um, and it becomes a little bit more philosophical um, as well as still being like, I mean, I've referenced like, Infinity, Infinity Gauntlet a bit because it's Ooh. a bit like that kind of, I, it's actually me kind of taking stuff I love from the big widescreen crossovers and take it with something a bit more Stalin-esque in terms of let's really dig into the characters um, in a in a more I said philosophical is the only way I can put it and so you know can I uh, can I do both you know can I essentially get Miller and Mollison back together and make them make out and see if they can like, make it up again <laughs> um, like something that you know that's what that's my kind of vibe um, so it moves between these three acts and like. At the end, it's deeply personal and apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. And the middle, it's like, it's very much personal for the characters and also has real kind of world-scale politics. And the beginning, it's um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a classic cool threat, as in that, that kind of thing. So that's, that is the kind of vibe. Um, mm-hmm. But people do punch each other a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It sounds, it sounds like it's going to be a very exciting time to see that happening. I mean, I've not been a... Uh historically not been a big Eternals guy, uh, but been very much enjoying uh, what you and Assad and others have been doing on the title. Uh, you know, for most X-Men fans, I'd say they've not been tied to the Eternals that much. Uh, but 
there is there is one big instance of that. And the real question I'd have for you, Kieran, is how much is this polling from 2000's New Eternals Apocalypse Now that introduced a bunch of New Eternals to fight Apocalypse who were never seen again? It's a difficult. I tell you, that is literally the one. You know, my Eternals run, for people who haven't read it, is I've quite aggressively tried to take everything in. Like, I've kind of treated, I've looked at the entire right. history of Eternals, which is, for we say, complicated and try, and also contradictory, <laughs> and try to actually weave into like one. Uh, like, imagine if Tolkien wrote it all. That's how I've sort of viewed it. Um, right. I've not touched that yet. You know, like, actually, I don't want to say that completely because it's like, I don't want to cut off certain elements. But um, I'll tell you, there's another even deeper cut that I, I have worked in. I'll, That's exciting. Uh, Black, to see. Black Knight Exodus. I do, I do love me some very, very early Jim Chung art and yeah. some pining. Oh, there's, there's a lot of pining there. Uh, and you know what? A lot of the people who enjoy that pining, uh, they they asked a couple of questions uh, coming from the Comics XF Twitter feed. Uh, there are about a thousand people who ask questions, so we're not getting around to nearly any of them. Uh, but I think the first one, first one we want to go to, comes to us uh, from Cathal Donovan O'Neill, who asks, "Which Quiet Council member would want to put David Cole in the Exiles hole?" I would say, like, you know, uh, the only uh, hole uh, that uh, David Cole could be would actually be in Hole itself, probably as a bassist, you know, after Courtney Love has fired a few. Uh, that's how I would see Cole. For folks who don't know, that is David Cole, the uh, at least lead character of the first uh, series yeah. of Funimax. self-insert, self-mockery uh, character. Uh, yeah, he's just like an awful music snob character. Uh, like, imagine, like, um, uh, Constantine. If he was just really into teen pop. Now, speaking speaking of teen pop, uh, Sean asks of the Quiet Council, who has the best musical taste and who has the worst? I mean, I, I, I'm going for the gut on this. Emma has the best taste because I think Emma's just I think Emma's the only one who really cares about pop music. I mean, not even, actually, mm-hmm. not even cares, but I think she would be. I think Emma has a real great taste in uh, whatever's going on in dance at any, any particular time, whatever's needed for a party, because you can't really throw the Hellfire Gala without knowing what what acts to book. What, what music to play you mm-hmm. know this is kind of the aggressive thing there um i think things i think most this is one of the things that i tell you a pet hate in comics that i have it's like when a when a writer gives a music taste to the characters and it's a bit too cool for them because i think mm-hmm. a lot of superheroes have pretty bad music taste i use that in quotation marks as in i just don't think it's i don't I, think it's me- i don't think it's their thing you know what i mean I think the most accurate thing I've ever seen is in the 90s when Scott and Jean's wedding song was by U2. Yes. Like, that felt right for them. Yeah. And I, I, like, they aren't cool enough. I, I've got absolutely no problems with U2 whatsoever, but you're right, you know. You, oh, no, know. Boy, Boy's Great, yeah. Joshua Tree still holds up. Yeah, um, but you're right, I'm sorry, you're right. This is kind of, I mean, to us, oh, especially, I guarantee Scott would like Axon Baby, because he, he would see this, the glasses and think, oh, that's good. Like, you know, just, just wearing the big glasses all the time. I could be into that. <laughs> Um, okay, who's got the worst mute taste in the cat council? Oh, I'm going through it. Well, actually, Sinister, in the opening scene, Sinister is discussing Elgar of, um, of Immortal X-Men. And Elgar's pretty good. Uh, uh, so it's not Sinister. Um, oh, I've got go. Maybe Colossus? Colossus just feels like a cliche choice. Colossus feels like he would also have just terrible musical taste. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit like, I know it's so, especially, it's the problem with Colossus, of course, the sliding timeline breaks him, but the, behind the Iron Curtain of Colossus would mean he's musically disconnected <laughs> in that way. And I just don't think he, I, it could be a lot of Scorpions records there. You know, that's that kind of vibe. I can literally imagine all the, all the Colossus fans have come for me now. Uh, I'm, I don't know if Colossus fans are necessarily the fans who have strong opinions on the band Scorpion. That is true. Uh, I was about to say, let's go with... Like those are two different worlds for most people. Also, I think it'd be quite a cute beat with Colossus being judged for his uh, music taste. You know what I mean? It's, and I think Colossus not having as cool a music taste, and you feel quite bad about it. Except, the mm-hmm. flesh, of course, Colossus is also an artist, so maybe he has got better exposure to art, you know, music than I would think. You know what I mean? Like, this is a, I take the most shallow questions more seriously than the big ones. <laughs> so... Uh, and you should. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Shaw. Shaw doesn't strike me as someone with bad music taste. That's true. That's true. Uh, now, this comes to us from uh, Luke. Uh, Luca Great. I don't know if that's his name. It's Twitter. Who knows what their actual names are? Uh, and this is actually pulling from your Eternals era. But uh, 
in his original brief appearances, Uranus looked like a human, more or less, uh, as Eternals do. What was the thought process behind the redesign of the character? Was it just to emphasize the, hey, this is dark side. This is a dark side guy. Uh, just implies there's only ever one thing. And I'm always a bit twitchy. You know enough, I mean? like, I'm always a bit twitchy over answering these sort of questions because I often, like, I used to do writer's notes in my kind of books. And I used to say some stuff about mm-hmm. choices and behind them. And people tend to take them as whatever I said as the reason why I did things. And of course, they're among them. But there's always reasons I don't say. And there's always more, you know what I mean? There's always mm-hmm. more. And because choices are complicated. Um, in the case of like, why give him a new look? Well, it's partially because at least my reading of those stories has appeared in, they are kind of, they're literally bracketed as myths of the Eternals. These are backup stories in a strip. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure they are events we're meant to have seen. They're almost like stories we are reading. So in other words, I did not take that to be a definitive look for uh, Urinos in the same way. You know, so I thought I was open to doing that. Also, they're incredibly obscure and no one cares. <laughs> Sorry, that's not true. I'm, I'm joking. Um, so Hold on. It, it, it's obscure by eternal standards, which until about six months ago was pretty darn obscure, yeah. period. I mean, it's like that kind of, and it's almost like I want him to be the most important villain. It, I, I describe him as Morgoth. He is the original sin of the Eternals. He's the bad guy. And like, do the beard doesn't cut it. You know what I mean? Like, um, and you're right, there's absolutely a dark seed influence to him. Like my kind of like at least part of my thinking of Uranus was people say, you know, Phanos some people say, Oh, Phanos is just a dark seed ripoff. And that's just not true. There's they couldn't be more different no. as characters, because like Phanos is poetry. I mean, especially in Eternals, I'm writing as Lord Byron, you know, a very aggressive Lord Byron. And whilst uh Dark Seed is just cold, the cold mathematics, the idea of literally you know, mm-hmm. grinding away anything that's human. And Uranus is from that, you know, Uranus is and the specific spin I give to him, and that's where he becomes his own character very much, is that he's disappointed granddad. I didn't, I didn't see Succession before then, but like Logan Roy is basically uh, Uranus. Mm-hmm. It's like, if, imagine if Succession ends with like dragging him and putting him in a cell and keeping him forever to be pissed off with his useless children. Um, that's that's Uranus, and he's been there for 400,000 years, brooding. And that's the kind of like, you know what I mean? Like that, after, and also the fact, I checked the cat, and it, oh, he's literally, you know, Phanos's granduncle. That's interesting. You know what I mean? So I just mm-hmm. saw a really useful way, and you only really get the power of having an interesting Phanos comparison if it at least is on a scale with Phanos. And Ryan uh, right. Bonacamp, who of course you know died during the issue, you know, which is a huge loss, did the design, and he absolutely nailed it. This kind of when he added the the broken uh, fracturedness to him, and that that's mm-hmm. really interesting about you and us. The idea this broken angel. And that's kind of like, also links to my other side, because obviously Uranus is obviously a great myth, but all of Eternals are thinking as angels. So him as kind of, he's a Lucifer model, because if you go to uh, Paradise, not Paradise Lost, the other one, Milton. No, Paradise Lost. Um, Paradise yeah, yeah, sorry, Lost, my yeah. brain went. Uh, it's a third of angels rebelled. You know, that's mm-hmm. the thing. And, if, and Uranus led a third of the Eternals in the original war. So, you know, I'm explicitly doing angel shit. And so he is our, who's our Lucifer? And then when we actually see him, it's like Dante, because Dante, made, the center of hell is cold in Dante's Inferno, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, uh, you have like uh, Satan embedded in the in the ice. And that's the kind of visuals I'm taking for Uranus' cell. Um, got him. You know, sorry, when I mention this kind of the, there's always a lot of stuff there. Here's an example. So that's why I changed, because I wanted, I just, I wanted to make a major villain. Like, if I rarely, you see a chance to, for me, when you're making characters in the Marvel Universe, it's always got to be, what's the niche? Because if you just make mm-hmm. a niche that's already filled, it's pointless because they're not going to pick up. What's special about this person? What's cool about them? Um, and I did, you know, that's what I described earlier with Sinister. That was the aim. And with Uranus, okay, Phanos is surrogate granddad. He sounds interesting. And and if you look to the history of the, of the Eternals, oh yeah, there's a space here for a really interesting guy. Let's and then of course they never really explain why Uranus is bad back in the day. So I kind of dig into right. it, and give him a motivation, give him reasons for doing stuff. Um, yeah, and that's the, I must admit, people seem to really like this shit, which is nice, you know, considering like he's an important character. <laughs> well, that that's good because uh, uh, expert angelologist uh, Robert Secundus does ask that in the Eternals, the Heretic, you explored the evils of vile Protestantism and sola scriptura ideologies. His question is: When can we expect to see the rejection of the philoquy explored and those orthodox schiz- schismatics put in their place? I do not know all the big Bible words that Robert knows. I do. Look, this is, I must say, I've been quite enjoying because people have taken, I definitely, Eternals has gone on long enough that people sort of see what I'm doing. 
Um, mm-hmm. And Robert has very much picked up on the fact that I'm riffing on fundamentalism, or not actually interpretation of scriptures. That's kind of what I'm doing. Um, but right. I, I had another, you know, equally smart person text, uh, twittering at me earlier, uh, talking about like, oh, you just you're riffing on some obvious uh, paperclip makers, aren't you? Um, and <clears throat> you know, there's three rules. You know, I'm absolutely doing Asimov. I'm also doing, uh, you know, in- scripture interpretation. I'm doing both of them. And like, and I'm definitely there's there's the mixture between the terms. Like, some of the rules are hard coded; they have to do these things. And then they also have the things they choose to do, which they are drawing from these principles. They have to do. And so, what? Where does scripture end? Where does where does scripture? Where does action? What is programming? What is choice? That's the area. So, what for me is interesting about Eternals is it's doing all these things at once. And then we kind of go, so where what what's going on here? Because it's definitely the when you we you know we literally Martin Luther it in the issue, uh, you know mm-hmm. we have the I think I even write in the script that whole sequence is you want to imagine Uranus hammering this uh, chain email essentially <laughs> to the wall. Uh, so like absolutely, it has got that kind of revolutionary religious aspect to it, but it's also Cody. It's also like very much its own thing, and it also it's from first principles. Like when I made up the rules, I didn't know where they were going to go. I just kind of like, okay, what are the core rules of the Eternals? You know, they've got to kill deviants. Uh, they've got to protect the Earth. Kind of. Let's define that funnily. And they've got to protect Celestials. That's all they do. And then everything else is just me riffing on those three rules, which is absolutely straight as Asimovian. But it's also like, it's it's absolutely scripture interpreter as well. Like you, When you go for the, the debates of scripture over what does this thing mean? And I think Robert in his thread, I did see this, you know, translation. Translation is a huge thing. It's like, oh no, we added a comma Absolutely. and everything changes. <laughs> I had a I had a piece that I wrote that actually went up right before this interview where I was very explicit with them to say, no, we have to use the RSV translation of this. It means so much to all of these other things that are going on in this that if you use anything else, it's just worthless. Don't even try. It's interesting. I mean, I was learning, I, I learned German at school, but I've been learning Italy, Italy not learning it. I've forgotten English. Uh, I mean, my wife's Italian. She's like always been uh, bilingual, and she just she's a poet, and a lot of her work is about translation and translation being transformation. One of her best poems, at least one of my favourite poems of hers, is uh, called "The Lost," and it's basically about it's a found poem of multiple translations of the first stanza of Dante's Inferno rearranged, and it's about it's about and it's about the rhythm between them, and you realise all these are completely different. All of them are saying the same thing. And it makes it very clear about oh we trans you know what translation does and how all this kind of failure to understand one another and what we do with language and how isolated we are in a Wittgensteinian way I guess is that right probably it sounds clever though <laughs> no that's that's good uh, well that's what we've got here and thank you so much for being on I think it was great I know we're all very much looking forward to uh, Immortal X Men uh, Judgment Day and you've got you've got some other stuff going on right now I know. Uh, you have the once and future uh, still uh, still ongoing. Yep, uh, we are heading into the fifth arc soon, which is really exciting. Um, like Dan and Tamra are just like it's such a fun book to write. It's very relaxing, and I kind of take it as a kind of almost a challenge. It's like okay, what new monster will I make Dan and Tamra do this week, this month mm-hmm. rather? Um, and it's great. You know, we're sort of heading towards a climax now as well. So it's kind of it's a really good place to sort of jump on the previous trades and kind of go for it. No, that's exciting. And then you've got the uh, Kickstarter for the Die RPG coming up pretty soon, correct? Yeah, I mean, we haven't, we haven't got the completely sure date yet because we had it planned before Christmas. And we went, actually, the situation was still utterly unattainable to promise a Kickstarter. And we've carried on working. So, mm-hmm. like, the manuscript's in a really good place now. Um, so it'll be fulfilling much quicker than normally after a Kickstarter, I think. Or at least an RPG Kickstarter. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, that should be... We'll be announcing soonish when it should be. Like I don't want to, I don't want to say it now, but like there is a Kickstarter page to sign up on. Uh, so if you Google Die Kickstarter, Rook, Ronan, Deckard, who are publishing it, you should find it. Sign up and it will announce. Uh, there's always my newsletter. I'll, I'll announce everything in the newsletter anyway. It's a, if you guys, you know, newsletters are the hottest thing in comics again. It's 2004, baby, and we're <laughs> back to it. Uh, Kieran's is a pretty good one just to uh, get a uh, get a feel for what's going on and get some fun thoughts about uh, the industry and storytelling and playing games and things of that nature oh i should mention actually i write the die rpg like that's actually one thing the readers might want to know it's not just uh as something we've licensed i actually written this whole system from scratch mm-hmm. um yeah which was a foolish endeavor why did i do that and, and folks if you don't know what we're talking about in terms of die it's a great image comic uh that 
Kieran wrote. Uh, it is drawn by Stephanie Hans. Absolutely phenomenal book. Just finished with its 20th issue a uh, few months back. Go check it out if you uh, want to get kind of a feel for uh, what Kieran does outside of, you know, giving the mutants a hard time. Uh, Adam, anything anything real quick you want to you wanna plug for you? Uh Folks, you can always find me on Twitter at Arthur Stacy. Uh, I do believe I have an episode of uh, Gosh, Oh Gosh Golly Wow, the Excalibur podcast coming up, um, where we talk about an absolutely terrible issue of Excalibur, where they try and uh, synopsize the entire history of the Phoenix, and Alan Davis does his best, and it is not good. Um, <laughs> so that's coming up soon. Um, do we, Karen? Do we ask you where? People can find you online if you want. We didn't. You didn't. No, no. I'm just like I'm on Twitter, but I don't read much. That's right. I'll be a lot. I'm on Twitter a lot less when the issue comes out. I know what the internet's like. <laughs> uh, but like, I, um, Kieran Gillen, just enter it. Uh, Twitter's a good place to. F- I've got a website. I've linked to most of my stuff. My newsletter's on Button Down. Uh, but like, just go to Twitter and it links to everything there. Just Kieran Gillen. Kieran Gillen. That, that's cool. If you can spell it right, most people can't. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's it, with an it, O, it's not an A. Find uh, Doctor Who companions who aren't writing, uh, aren't writing uh, X Men. It's really a uh, confusing. It's difficult, but yeah. I, I interviewed her once, yeah. just before I'm one of my last jobs as a journalist. But one of the uh, things I did just before I stopped um, was interviewing Karen Gillan just as she was uh, starting. You know, just before Doctor Who started, and I resisted asking, "How does it feel to have ruined my life?" Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, that, oh, man. that's fun. Folks, uh, if you want to find me, don't, but do check out some of the stuff that has been going up on Polygon recently. Uh, I'm back into the writing game for the last little bit, so you can find reviews of well, Ghost Cage from Image that's on CXF. Uh, and you can find some discussions on Polygon, both of that time Daredevil fought a vacuum cleaner and the, a bunch of stuff about Omega-level mutants. Uh, There's a great group from the X office that sat down and chatted about their thoughts on some of that stuff. So go check those out. Those should be live by the time this episode goes up. Uh, and then next week, we're going to be talking about the Shadow King on this show. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be an interesting time. That's a character that mm, Vita's doing a great job with. <laughs> and that's that's the best thing I can say about the Shadow King. Uh, but you know I love my Shadow King. Love it. Kieran, thank you so much. It was a great time to have you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. All right. Until then, folks, this has been Battle of the Atom, and we hope you survived the experience.